Now what's this mutatu here? Yeah, you see. And this uh, road, this road is not for Makati. Oh yeah? Yeah. He see. shouldn't be out here. Because he's supposed to use the... Ah, that's what... for Barcelona. Yeah. And Barcelona. Uh, yeah. Well, that's why it says illicit bando lifestyle on the back. <laughs> that's illicit Matatu driving. Oh, yeah, he's going. He's going for it. But at least he's got the neon lights for Friday. The party's going in the Matatu. <laughs> All right. Well, it's good to be here Friday in Nairobi. No problem, he said. I'll send my best Boda Boda guy to come and get you. And what followed was a 90-minute moto taxi ride. It was a thing of unusual adrenaline. Beautiful, except that every once in a while I would smack my helmet on the side view mirror of a truck we passed or as we thunked across yet another crumbled median in order to fly the wrong way down a nighttime highway, I just involuntarily cussed and clenched. But today's guest, Shravan Vithyarthi, was right. If he had not sent his Boda guy, I would still be stuck in the daily Donner party that is Nairobi gridlock. It's why, with a flight to catch later on, I ended up taking Uber Boda, suitcase and all, to the airport. There is also another tremendous upside of the ride. The back of a moto taxi is the best way to view the most extraordinary spectacle of Nairobi's streets, the Matatus. Journalist Barbara Wanjala once wrote in our Roads and Kingdoms Guide to Nairobi that Matatus were by far the best available metaphor for life in Kenya. They should be a simple thing, just collectivo minibuses that run set routes around the city but they are so much more than that. Each one is completely customized with a different combination of graffiti, lighting, sound system, even amenities like onboard Wi-Fi. The louder, brighter, bolder, the better to attract riders, turning public transportation into a competitive, non-stop mating display. The outsides are painted often with famous faces like Tupac or Biggie, Che or Fidel, Mandela or Fela always accompanied with t-shirt ready phrases like awesome god or stoner advisory extreme high and here's the metaphor it can be a good thing or not not for me to judge but i think the kenyan mind tilts toward atomization away from homogeneity the most dominant force in kenyan politics after all is factionalism there were 43 different tribal groups in kenya all played in varying degrees by the shrewd president Uhuru Kenyatta. And then, just before his re-election three years ago, he designated a 44th tribe. Not an offshoot of Maasai or Luo, but instead, the 44th tribe are Kenyans of Indian descent. Depending on your view, this was either just electioneering or something far more meaningful. But there is no disputing that South Asians have been a huge part of Kenyan life from pre-colonial coastal trading to mass emigration during British rule. And whatever plans the British had to place Indians above native Africans in their shitty colonial racial Jenga games, the 44th tribe found its own future in solidarity with Kenya. And no one did so with more revolutionary zeal than the martyred Indo-Kenyan photojournalist Priya Ramraka, whose biographer, 
and relative is this filmmaker, Shravan Vithyarthi, the same man who sent his best Boda guy to come and fetch me. Once I had made it safely to his home, Shravan and I cracked a bottle of Johnny Walker Black, the unofficial, but kind of official, drink of the Indian diaspora here. We drank it straight and talked about it all, from the early days of diaspora to Priya's murder in Biafra to the wonders of whiskey chicken. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Well, fuck, let's get right into it then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But nice. first, let's, let's, uh, let's have a toast to this drink. Yeah. Um, because this is also connected Cheers. to... Cheers. You have picked this drink for uh, ethnic reasons? <laughs> sure. Putting it bluntly. Um, Why not? <laughs> uh, and it is uh, Johnny Walker Black. And so what, what's the, what's the connection there? Uh, I mean, it's just something, you know, I guess as a kid, you just see your parents and their friends, um, drinking Johnny Walker black label and eating curry or cooking what they call a karoga, which is like a Wednesday evening, um, get together where people cook a curry, uh, around a fire. Um, it's, it's very stereotypical, but, uh, it's, uh, Sounds yeah. delightful. And, yeah. And made even better with Johnny Walker Black. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes sometimes they call it like whiskey, whiskey chicken. Um, <laughs> it's But it's a stereotype, you know, it's, and it's also traditionally it's associated with the Punjabi community more so, um, which is, you know, Indian diaspora in Kenya historically from northern India, as opposed to, for example, another larger group, which is the Gujaratis, who are, you know, vegetarian and teetotal. So um, it's um, very, it's not generally Indian at all. <laughs> um, I, I've, uh, I've gotten totally hammered with some Gujaratis in my day. Oh, okay. But <laughs> I know that that's a, uh, yeah, that is a sort of a, a moment of being uh, fallen, Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess. So there are, I mean, how does the community divide out here, the Indian community in Kenya? There's the old community that's been here since the railroad. Right. Um, and then there's a new community uh, that's come since independence, right? Is that, I mean, is that broadly speaking what it is? Uh, since independence or even later, you could argue as late as, you know, the 90s or even now, actually, in the last 10 years. You know, I mean, the the contractors that, you know, built my house are... Indian uh, Indians from yeah also Gujarati uh, but they've been here for like six or seven eight years not that long um, so yeah it ranges from like you said you know Indians who came four generations ago in late 1800s to that and the older the late 1800s are those Punjabis are those from all over India um, all over yeah and actually interestingly for example my ancestors um, came from a part of India that is now Pakistan, um, so pre-partition, basically. Uh-huh. Um, so when we trace back our family tree, it goes back to Pakistan now, as opposed to, to India. You've been doing a lot of visits back to the old homestead? Actually, no. Okay. <laughs> I'm just like, that's a little complicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, but how, yeah. I mean, how far back do you guys go in this country? In this country, four generations. So I was, well, I guess, you know, my generation, like, now has kids, right? Yeah. So, and then their parents, which is my generation, and then my parents, and then my parents' parents were also born here. And so my great-grandparents were the ones who first came over. So four to five, I guess. 
Got it. Yeah. So they would have come. When 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 would that have been? Would that be just after independence? Uh, no, late just... eighteen late eighteen hundreds. So yeah, so like my great grandfather came over um, as to work on the railway. Um, Why am I feeling like, like I'm, I'm getting the generation thing? Oh yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> yes. Okay. They're your great great parents, of course. They right. weren't. They didn't move here in the fifties. Yeah. No. Exactly. When they were elderly. Right. Right. Yeah. So they came for the railroads. They were part of that original. Yeah. So what what was that? Why, you know, for someone who can't even count generations, uh, right. <laughs> I can use some schooling. I assume it's the colonial government that made some grand policy that they were going to um, use Indian engineers and workers and everybody. What what was that about? Yeah. So this is fascinating. Can I give you the long version? Or yeah. The short? Okay. I mean, so just, we have like a lot of whiskey, and cool. I I have it says on my uh, SD card I have five hours and fifty eight minutes of uh, memory <laughs> remaining. So although I love how you, I love how you first define time in terms of whiskey quantity. <laughs> that's, that's right. Great. It's like an hourglass, <laughs> but it's whiskey. Um, well, before I begin the yeah, yeah. The long version. Um, so. It kind of goes back to basically when the British were colonizing um, globally. India was essentially like a jewel in the in the British crown. Basically, there was tons of trade between India and the UK. Um, tea, especially, was a big deal. And so, in this kind of jingoistic time of like British imperialism, India was, like I said, the jewel in the crown. So it was kind of instrumental in terms of dictating how they ran their foreign policy. It was almost, to some extent, like geared around India. And so the big fear, of course, of the colonizers was, what if we lose these awesome territories, you know, that we've gen- gently taken over? Um, and so <laughs> the thinking was that India was actually really close to East Africa, in a sense. I mean, India is it's a five-hour flight, but it's also straight across the ocean. Yeah. So the thinking was that, well, if East Africa fell to an unfriendly power, then India would be vulnerable somehow to people being able to come across wow. that way. That's, um, a, that's an insane domino theory. Yeah. Um, but, okay. Yeah. Um, but you're right, it's close, and there have been ties that predated the British, right? Right. Uh, between this part of the world and India. Right. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the even longer... <laughs> that I, that I didn't right, go the into. extended cut yeah um yeah but, i mean you could go all the way back to you know um yeah like early indian sailors and arabs and portuguese um slave trade i mean swahili as a language is made up from you know all the language the, the countries that traded on the slave route um so actually swahili is spoken kind of on the slave route primarily Anyway, digression, sorry. No um, shit. I did not know that. I've yeah. been like super fascinated just by Swahili as anyone who comes here is because it's kind of, it sounds amazing. It's got English script, so you can yeah. actually start to fuck with it a little bit and totally. like read uh, what's going on. But so it, it was kind of a, a global language for slavers. Yeah, it was just a way for, you know, slavers coming through were like, okay, well, we need to be able to talk to people along this route, basically. It's so like an evil Esperanto. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. but that's that's the history. Yeah, uh, so it go, you know, goes from the Tanzania coast all the way into Congo, basically, and then kind of stops there. Um, so it doesn't go really north or south. Um, but anyway, to protect India, the British were like, okay, well, let's try to secure the east coast of Africa. Um, and so they decided to colonize Kenya and said, oh, well, you know, close enough to Uganda, you know, let's also take that over. So domino yeah. effect. Yeah. Right. Um, but and, the offensive, not the right. defensive version. Right. Okay. Exactly. And so 
Um, of course, when they colonized the place, they had already had experience of colonizing India really efficiently using railroads. Um, and that was a real instrument of like of imperial penetration in India. And they wanted to do the same thing in Kenya. But, but when they came, Kenya had no system of money and slavery had already been abolished at that point. So there was no way of finding local labor wow. for the railway. So just like all their favorite things, like <laughs> cash and slaves, were not yeah. not available. Yeah, exactly. Like this, your your currency is yeah your currency is not valid here, basically. Uh, so wow. you know the Africans were like, well, you know, you can't enslave us, and we don't have a system of money, so you can't pay us. So they just figured they would bring over indentured labor from from India, who already knew what money was. Um, could get paid, and were also kind of British subjects at the time. So, and could see maybe a value proposition in sending shit back home or whatever. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They were, you know, entrepreneurs in a sense, right? They were sort of thought, let's go over there and make some money. Uh, and and it's, then, a, it's also so amazing because it's always it's like the Brexit fucks who were like, you know. But we gave them a railroad, <laughs> right? I mean, this is like, yeah. you just keep seeing it pop up again and again as a defense of colonialism. Yeah, I know, you know, sort of uh, massacres yeah. and uh, mass subjugation. But hey, yeah. how about that railroad? Huh? Yeah, right. Um, exactly. But even those railroads, you know, were developed to facilitate the economy, not, you know, the British imperial economy, not the local right. networks. Right. What you're um, saying is that the as an instrument of power. Right. Railroad was, they were like, that worked really well in India. Right. Let's, let's do it here. Right. And Man, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear about the fiascos that followed. Yeah. <laughs> of, of that. I mean, I guess they, they did camp out here for a while, so yeah. it wasn't an immediate failure, right. uh, the project. But, um, okay, so they brought Indians over at, at all skill levels, right? They were, yes. um, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, just laborers, but some sort of engineers here and there. And so my great-grandfather ended up um, becoming a station master at a place called Athi River, which is around 26 kilometers from Nairobi. Um, in today's traffic, that's three days by car. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ten uh, minutes by flying Boda Boda. Right, exactly. Yeah. Great. Um, <laughs> no fear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, wow. And, and so... Um, and. Uh, yeah, and basically, so he decided to, to stay on in Nairobi. And there was still enough of a tie between, you know, India and, and Kenya at that, at that time that the Indians would send their children back to India for school and mm -hmm. was, were able to. Um, so sent his kids over to, uh, back to India. Uh, and that was right around the time that Gandhi was... You know, picking up picking up speed in, in India so they came back full of just massively you know nationalistic ideas um, and just really fired up about this idea of, of independence because yeah. they themselves had grown up you know and were living in color in the color bar that Kenya society was apartheid basically yeah and um, I mean and Gandhi had also learned some portion of what he knew from having been in South Africa too right, right? I mean it's like it seems like a common Indian experience at the time to just be able to like translate like how fucked you are at home into how fucked you are in other parts of the British Empire and probably realizing like, wait a second, this whole globe has nothing great for us, you know, like. Exactly. Yeah, yeah to totally. Um, yeah, well, it's just, right, just sort of divided and, and ruled, 
yeah, ruled society. So that was your that was your grandfather's generation who went back and they brought some some uh, fiercer ideas um, than right. generations before about you know what the Raj could do to itself. Yeah, exactly. And just you know, and I think the early um, manifestations of of like peaceful resistance, you know, was 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 a big part of of what they learned. Um, and so when my grandfather came back. He essentially started inventing himself as a as a militant journalist. Um, so he started a, a handwritten newspaper that he would distribute to his, you know, just people in the neighborhood, and then eventually um, acquired a like just somehow acquired a printing press, um, and then started the first anti-British newspapers in Kenya. Um, and wow. he was the editor, and he would he got together a whole bunch of you know other like-minded. Indians um, who had also studied abroad or who had, you know, gone wherever and who were just kind of all living under the British color bar and to essentially agitate against the colonial government. Militant journalists. That's a, <laughs> you know, I want to find who's got that on their LinkedIn, you yeah. know, like, that's a great description. Um, and sadly not, you know, yeah. not, not applicable to enough people these days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's like the opposite of the clickbait journalist. Um, okay, so he came back and so and and this was all organizing within the Indian community. Yeah, here. Yeah. So what was what was interesting um, was that because the Indians came over and were paid by the British, um, they like I said before, they they knew they knew what money was, and they kind of slowly created you know a money economy in in Kenya. So they automatically, you know, were, you know, in terms of facilitating trade between the African farmers and like, and, you know, white colonialists or even just, you know, amongst that whole shopkeeping genre of Indian that everybody kind of is so familiar with. I mean, it, it, the root of that is that, you know, the Indians became shopkeepers because they could, you know, like in terms yeah. of like they had the experience of what money was and also in terms of the color bar, they were allowed to. So the British discriminated, right, against different ethnicities in different ways. So, you know, Africans couldn't own land, right, and couldn't live in certain areas. Indians couldn't own land and couldn't farm, but could have shops. Um, so yeah, there was that whole... Um, so in that, in that way, they were able to basically become financially better off and so use that, those funds to kind of finance newspapers, for example. Um, against the British. You know, I want to get to how that kind of colors some of the relations now between Indians and, and Kenyan, you know, sort of, uh, of the different ethnic groups. Although I guess Indian Kenyan is now defined as a separate tribe, or has it been, it's gotten its designation? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. anyway, I want to get to that. But it is, right. it, it, it's kind of fascinating because, you know, I'm, I'm half Jewish, so I, I, I think I have some experience with this kind of thing, which is like, dating back to medieval courts in Eastern Europe because of usury laws and, you know, just where, where they thought Christianity was at the time, like they wouldn't let Christians be moneylenders and bankers. So it's like, okay, well, here are the Jews. And they, you know, they were by almost necessity became kind of the, the treasurers of the courts. And then every once in a while, we just like get totally slaughtered for being money handlers and just a different race and and then but it's just like this cycle of like the only thing you allow them to do is the thing you despise them for doing which you know is a cycle that continues on i think uh certainly with with jews it's just like 
this is where we come from. This is what you gave us, motherfuckers. Like, you know, how are you going to like hold that against, uh, against the people? So, but yeah, in, in a very specific kind of uh, location specific sense, in Kenya, the setting up of all of these financial instruments, all of these kind of in, institutions of finance happened because the Indians were here doing kind of Raj institutional work. Um, and that's where they ended up. Yeah, that's actually, it's fascinating that, that you mentioned, you know, the, the Jewish heritage. Indians have been written about quite often as the Jews of East Africa, essentially a non-indigenous bourgeoisie. Mm. Um, and, you know, yeah, you could say I've had, you know, similar, yeah, that similar sort of discrimination that you that, that you mentioned, yeah, has been a part of the um, the experience. Part of the whole fun. I mean, you know, listen, when I get together with Koreans, they're like, Oh, we're the Jews of Asia, you know. So it's like, <laughs> right. There's, there's good things to see in, uh, you know, in, uh, depending on the perspective. I think they just mean that they're like do well in school or something. You know, it's it's a little different, but yeah. But, but there's a heavy price to pay for being, uh, you know, for for being different, and then also being around money in a way that, like, right. you know, that makes people suspicious, uh, maybe extra suspicious. I mean, it, we're, it, you know, it's also it's it's a very useful foil for whatever the hell else is going on. Um, I guess, yeah, sort of a um, very visible economic majority, but demographic minority, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, and the visibility part is, is, is key, yeah. Um, so, so all right, so going back to your grandfather's, uh, yeah. he got a hold of a printing press, mm-hmm. um, started to run a paper for the community here. How did, how did that go down? Um, I mean, were the... I imagine that, that um, I'm not sure what this picture is. I imagine a, a, an overweight, you know, middle management colonial, you know, who's, you know, thigh deep in gin anyway, and having a hard time kind of keeping it all together, you know? I mean, this is my picture of what the late, you know, kind of British uh, empire was like. Did they have the opportunity to both uh, re- repress kind of local uprisings as well as, you know, the, the suddenly very frisky and, and militant uh, Indian population here? Was like, was this a dangerous thing that your grandfather was doing? Oh, well, yeah, t- totally. I mean, so so initially um, he he started the first anti-British newspaper in English, but he went even further and started actually Swahili language newspapers and even further in, you know, Luo language newspapers, which is, a, you know, one of the bigger ethnic communities um, in, in Kenya as well. And, yeah. And that also crosses over. Luo, also, they have it in Uganda, and right? Yeah, I mean, that was essentially the border split, yeah. right? But a very, yeah, across, you know, by the lake, Lake Victoria, basically. So um, he's, yeah. He, by doing it in both languages, he's fucking with, like, all of British East Africa. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, yeah, it's, I don't know if those papers necessarily went, went, you know, that far, like, circulated that much. But basically, you know, he was, he was causing a stir. Um, and... What's interesting too about um, what I was saying before about the kind of financial ability to to start a newspaper, um, you have to remember the Indians were actually still a very small demog- a small population, right? Um, the majority of of people were Black African, um, and so the political power that they were trying to influence was not so much Indian, but generally just the oppressed, but was primarily. Um, 
you know, the, the black African community. And like I said before, right, like because of the way the color bar was structured, the black Africans didn't have access to anywhere near as much money as, as the Indians did. So it was like the Indian financial access combined with the African political reach yeah. um, was what, you know, kind of gave these these fledgling presses and publications the momentum that, to your question, you know, really started to annoy the British, basically. Um, and actually what ended up happening, I think it was, I don't remember the exact year, but basically my grandfather had met with Jomo Kenyatta, uh, the first president of Kenya, and they had had a tea meeting and he said, look, you know, I'm going to just be able to give you, you can do whatever you want in my paper. You have a blank slate to write whatever you want, have as many, as many pages, you know, you know, and just really get your message out. And that's when the British basically arrested my grandfather, um, and he was, you know, sentenced to a year in prison with hard labor um, for essentially. I think his first offense was having criticized the British for recruiting African soldiers for one of their wars in Burma, and then not compensating them in the same way that the white soldiers were compensated. Um, so yeah, he had a lot of nerve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bringing no, that up. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, consorting with you know the, wow the black, I mean black that's Kenyans. and and you know Jomo Kenyatta is is that's the father of the nation like you know that's that's a that's a very big deal to have I, I mean I guess it strikes me as a sort of moral intelligence to be able to see through the I mean because clearly the colonial system was based on trying to get Indians to think well hey we got it better than black Africans like we're not them. We have more rights than them. We're, you know, we have a slightly more exalted position in the hierarchy. What's amazing about Gandhi's story, about, you know, your family story is the ability of people to, you know, whatever machinations that was supposed to inspire to just see right through that shit and be like, no, <laughs> like that's, you know, we, and then, you know, and on the, on the reverse for people like Jomo Kenyatta to like sit down with your father and not, you know, and, and not take the bait that's also offered of like, oh, well, these, you know, here are the people who've been brought in at a slightly higher station than black Africans, right? To the mutual understanding that everybody's in the same boat and they should just be rowing as quickly as possible away from Britain is like, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty awesome historical moment. Absolutely. In fact, you've basically summed up an entire um, essay that is, that is in my book um, by, this um, this writer uh, Sana Ayar, who'd written written recently written a book about called Indians in Kenya. It's a recent sort of history of, of that whole period, and and she talks about that time as you know, regardless of what happened later, and you know, divisions that emerged between the communities as a result of of whatever. Um, it was a time when there was a really really strong unity between the, the Black Kenyan community and the, the Indian community, um, and this kind of aspiration to to, to essentially be, defeat the color bar through unity and transcend, you know, those differences that were institutionally put into place. So like you said, right, like the Indians like had more financial access than the Africans, like there were certain parts of the city that were, you know, Indians only, things like that. So yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really important um, element. Uh, I've not read the essay, so sorry for plagiarizing. No, 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 no. 
your your larger <laughs> ideas, uh, Sanai. We, or, or maybe you wrote about it first. That <laughs> would be an incredibly speculative essay for me to write. Um, all right, but I, we're definitely going to talk about the book, so I'm, sure, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to get into it. But it's like uh, that yeah. that sense of common enemies when they're the right enemy. Mm, that's right. quite a that's quite a balm. It's quite a salve uh, for humanity. So your grandfather was uh, thrown in jail, released. Um, it sounds like he had multiple offenses against uh, the empire. Yeah, just various, you know, editorials being written, whether it was, yeah, you know, um, criticizing the British about that, that the Burma incident that I mentioned. Um, I'm trying to recall specifics of the others, but just generally he was in and out of jail all the time. And uh, actually we have what's what's interesting, and I, I, I wish I would be able to read them out but there are a couple of uh, court transcripts of, mm. of his court cases as well where it's almost playing like a movie scene like you, you, know, you picture the judge with his like you know wig on and just probably like, powdered right like yes. powdered wigs back <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly i love them they must have had a whole ship full of powdered wigs yeah know, just to <laughs> distribute around the world for their great uh, uh court system um yeah. It's a what in how how does the transcript read it? Can it's like vivid like you feel Yeah, it's it just you know life. like just kind of like just really confrontational language, you know, like from the you know from the from, from the judge to my grandfather, but also just really anyway, it's it's hard to go into without reading it. It sounds yeah, like I can't really paraphrase it and make it sound powerful, but anyway. Um but yeah, so he was just yeah, in and out of out of jail um a lot. And um and there's a very clear tie between that and the book, by the way, which I can get to. Yeah. But if you had a follow-up question about him. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting, too, that it, obviously it sounds like, you know, your family line chose to pick their fight here in East Africa and not back in India. Um, right? I mean, your your grandfather could have, at that point, the Raj was still extant. Like, he could have gone uh, back to India where he had been educated and, and kind of made his cause there. Um but but I, I don't know. I mean, is that a sign of just how deep the tie is of like, you know, fuck it, we are Africans. Like, this is this is where we're going to make our stand. Our you know our particular family is going to. I mean, what 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 do you read out of that? Yeah, that's a really interesting interesting thing to think about. Um, it's it just you wonder in that sense, you know, how long does one have to be in a place for one to feel so of the place that that's where you have your political fights. You know, or your, you know, where you kind of forge your identity and kind of fight for, yeah. um, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. One thought is just that, you know, they got here. And back then, I just think the world was just must have felt way, way bigger than it feels now, perhaps. And so, you know, they got here and were like, OK, well, we're not taking that boat back, you know, anytime soon. Um, or if we, we do, are. it'll be for a finite, like, to go get educated and maybe meet your wife but you know you're going to come back we've we we made the hard part of coming here and we're going to make you know we're going to make it work yeah exactly and you know i don't know enough about what my family was like when they before they came but i would imagine they were just sort of average villagers who didn't have much at all and so to come here and suddenly have you know um an income or you know um status uh was probably a a, a big deal for them and, and the so. ability to start shit you know, yes, right. and also, like, yeah. and to express yourself and have the means and the the kind of platform to do it. Right, um, right, exactly. That's it. It's a fascinating question. We talk about like how long does it require somebody to be, you know, in the country in order to 
kind of make their fights your own. I, you know, I thought about that a lot after 2016 in the States when you had so many people, including some people in my family, just like, fuck it, I'm moving to Sweden. I'm just like, I don't, like, we were, we were never from Sweden, like, you know, and we're also, you know, we're 250 years in on America. Like, you know, just because some asshole gets elected doesn't, I don't think it means that we, you know, it's time to just give it up. But that desire and that, uh, you know, that initiative to kind of stay and, and, and fight even the tough fights in, in your own country, I think it's harder now days because like you're saying, there's, you know, there was a lot less mobility back then. Maybe you had fewer choices. Now people are kind of like, well, I could move to the Caribbean and just <laughs> pretend that nothing bad is happening in this place where my family was for two centuries. Uh, and that would feel like the, a kind of a party foul uh, to me. <laughs> totally. Um, all right. So, yeah. so what was your father's context like then, growing up in in this? Had your had your grandfather already gone through all of the, the kind of the the the, the dark times of of uh, fighting his own ostensible government uh, by the time your father came up? Or yeah. So um, my father would have been very young. I think around about the time that my my grandfather was was going to was going to prison. Um, I mean, he has vague memories of you know having gone to visit him and. And things like that. Okay, um, so he was he was there for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just you know, sort of small memories. Um, but I think I think the generational tie for me between you know my grandfather's generation to my parents' generation, I think, is is rooted in the the, the subject of, of this book. Who is a Priyara Maraka, who was my my father's cousin. So basically, my grandfather's brother's son. Okay. Right. Uh, but but and a relation. Yeah. So like yeah. you know my father's cousin. So you could argue like in, in the Indian sense an uncle, you know, <laughs> or line them up. Yeah. Um, exactly. Or, or cousin once removed. Um, and and yeah. So. All right. So so let's start that that book thing because I I think obviously it's a big project that you've been working on uh, over the past little while. It it got this beautiful write up um, from Paul Thoreau and the New Yorker who was there, you know, at the kind of penultimate days, uh, of this uncle of yours, this cousin once removed. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because, uh, there's something about, I mean, it's an incredibly evocative. I think when you're thinking about the relationship between Indian Africans and black Africans and, you know, that, that common fight that they all had, like, this relative of yours was one of the great um, and sort of great and terribly forgotten, you know, kind of visual voices on on this entire era, right? So, like, one of the best African photojournalists of that era was related to you and happened to be an Indian African. And this book is something that you have uh, pursued. And I, I want to hear about, like, the process of, like, finding these photos and deciding that it needed to come out and like trying to get the word out. But, but that's, you know, it's an incredible artistic context for all of those conversations that we were just having about, you know, the relationship between these communities and, uh, and history, you know? Um, so, so tell me like, how did this start? Like what was the first germination of, uh, this book as a project? Yeah, well, so if you don't mind, just before I, I jump into that, yeah. the reason I brought it up at that exact point when you asked about, you know, my, my father's generation yeah. and how they came into into the um, what they were doing at the time that my, my grandfather was, you know, going to jail, it's especially relevant to the, the subject of the book because 
when he was when my grandfather was um, publishing this militant journalism that we talked about, um, yeah. he had taken my my uncle Priyamraga on as a staff photographer for these newspapers. Oh no shit. So okay. there is this really clear link, right, between the next generation and my grandfather's generation because he was photographing for these anti-British publications, basically. So um, he was old enough to have been so this is this is older than your father. Exactly. And of yeah. a generation who would have been there, you know, in deep colonial times and have been brought on by your grandfather. That's amazing. Yeah. And so he was like a cub reporter, cub photo journalist uh, at that time. Yeah. And I, I just laughed for a second because the newspaper was actually called the Colonial Times. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's, I'll show you later a photo. I know it doesn't work with audio, but there's a we'll, photo of we'll him. We'll put it in the show notes. There um, yeah. That um, is super salty. Yeah. <laughs> Calling it the Colonial Times. That's like, yeah. that is like very subtle shade, you know? Yeah. Uh, and nice. The, and the title of it, it, it's in English and also in Gujarati script as well. Uh, <laughs> Just to really kind of, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's, um, that's awesome. So, so Priya was my grandfather's nephew, and he would have grown up, of course, you know, messing with photography. But then suddenly, you know, from a very young age, like 12, 13, 14, getting small assignments here and there for this extremely aggressive and um, controversial publication. Um, so he was just deeply exposed to this idea that, you know, what the newspaper was doing was important. You know, what um, the idea that, you know, that the newspaper was a way for a large number of people to see what was going on and kind of develop ideas together. And one of the people we interview, um, that I interviewed for the, the film version of the book, because I made a film about it before I read the book. But he talks about this idea of, of nationalism and how nationalism could be defined as, you know, a lot of people having the same idea at once. Um, and a great way to do that is through, you know, a newspaper. You know, people are seeing a picture. And if they're seeing a picture of someone, you know, they know a large group of people know what somebody looks like, knows what they're trying to say, and it kind of creates this kind of collective, you know, thinking. Um, and so, so he was sensitized... Priya was sensitized to that at a, at a very young age. Um, and I think, unlike a lot of the fledgling photographers at that time, fledgling Indian photographers, he developed a political sensibility, as opposed to what a lot of photographers were doing, which were just kind of doing the studio rounds and like, you know, photographing, you know, people in studios. As, and, you know, you know, West Africa has this large history of, you know, studio photographers with Malik Sidibe and Seydou Keita and that whole genre. And East Africa has the same thing too. And it goes back again to this financial thing of like Indians could afford cameras, they could afford to set up studios. But he was very different in that he wasn't going the commercial route at all. Yeah. Um, it was just very much this kind of, okay, well, this is what my grand, my uncle is into. This is what these newspapers are doing. I'm going to be a journalist specifically. From militant journalist to militant photojournalist exactly, yeah. is the line. Exactly. And one of the most interesting photographs um, or interesting spreads in a newspaper that we have in the book is where Priya has photographed, um, it's like the state fair, basically, the equivalent of the state fair. And he's photographed it. He was he was also enterprising. He photographed, he would take like the same assignment, but for two different clients so that he would double his billing, essentially. That is um. <laughs> that is straight up 
2019 freelancer gold. There, yeah. there you go. There you go. Like, who's uh, sending me there and who else can I sell a story to? Exactly. But interestingly, in his case, one of the people he would sell to the British newspapers who would run purely the British angle of a story and his grandfather, his uncle, um, who was running the like backstory. So you have this amazing spread where it's, you know, the Duke and Duchess of so-and-so county are here in Nairobi having a wonderful time. Look at them meeting the natives. And he's got these lovely pictures of, you know, this African girl bowing down with about, you know, roses and giving it to somebody in this elaborate dress. And he's got another spread, which is basically like the caption is like, look at the toilets that are reserved for lesser homo sapiens, <laughs> um, you know, where the British have segregated the toilets, you know, like at the back of the state fair, stuff like that. So yeah, so he was really seeing the same, you know, event from from many angles. And Which is, I, I mean, that's, I, I don't know, I'm sure there's something much more intelligent to be said about, uh, you know, the kind of shape-shifting that is required to kind of exist and, and survive and kind of make a living within a system and then also have an avenue and a platform and a perspective to show how the system is so utterly fucked, you know? That's yeah. really, that's super interesting. Yeah. Um, Again, you're plagiarizing from the book because that's somewhat, actually, Paul Theroux talks a little bit about that, how Priya Jesus. was so good at... Um, All right. Next, <laughs> yeah. next podcast, I'm just going to do a reading from the book. There you go. And <laughs> just credit yourself. That's, that's fine. right. That's right. Uh, that would be a very colonial thing. Um, so so tell, me, tell me about the book itself. You know, not to abridge this life, which was so unworthy of being a bridge that you should just buy the fucking book so you have the whole thing and, and we'll definitely have that in the show notes but like this this man lives you know his ideals to to his death basically right i mean he mm -hmm. he chased all of these wars of independence around the continent and um and did so at very great proximity and it ended up costing him his life and you know for whatever reason then he his name, I guess, despite the fact that he was working with all of the best and the biggest kind of uh, overseas publications for these, you know, these news assignments, but somehow he just wasn't remembered, I guess, in the in the canon. I, I mean, that's that's the sense that I have. I don't know if that was part of what motivated or animated you. Is just like feeling like more people should know this guy. I mean, he was there for all of these big moments, and he was one of the great photojournalists of his time, and yet you know, he, his name doesn't ring out in that same way. So is that true? I mean, did, was there a part of you when you were kind of looking at this story? It's like, if more people knew, then they would know they should have known. Yeah, I think so. And that's, it's a wonderful question. It, it really ties into, um, I think this idea of, of history and, you know, what we need to, to know about our past just to, you know, to kind of know, I think about it when I think of, you know, the story about Pri, I think of, you know, he's, he's sort of a hero, of, of you know, Kenyan history in many ways that, as you said, not many people know about. And I think, yeah, it, it, it raises two thoughts for me. Like one is, I feel like in Kenya, um, there is, you find a dominant feeling of collective amnesia that's that's kind of um, that, that we sort of encounter. You know, you you find that there there are you know heroes of of Kenyan history, um, often opposition politicians that are written out of, of history in in many ways or certainly not explored anywhere near the extent you know that, that they should be um, and that is I think that's 
that's really sad because you know it's like there there are these wonderful stories that um that people aren't aren't going to get to know about um and um and i think i don't think priya was the story of of my uncle priya was was necessarily part of that i think that he was just kind of um i think he was forgotten perhaps because his family didn't necessarily value the idea of you know photojournalism and journalism as much as perhaps you know i i maybe wish they had um there was always this idea that you know there was this guy you know priya was this amazing photographer and and he died you know and he was he was a hero and and that was it you know um well it's a very intense strain of your family line right from your grandfather to your uncle like i assume everybody else is just kind of busy trying to get by and make a living and just be regular people but these were exceptional people who probably didn't quite fit in with with it you know yeah well exactly there's this joke in in that that one hears in the indian community which is you know indian parents tell their children you can be whatever you want to be doctor or lawyer um and you know priya comes from a remarkable family you know his his um the you know his uh d- descendants of of his generation you know you know his his nephews and nieces are now like you know the top top of their field but nobody ever went into the and you know and his brothers too you know all like wonderful doctors and business people but he was definitely the the odd one out and so perhaps maybe that's the reason why you know he wasn't remembered as much right cuz um, his family wasn't standing on a hilltop saying like look at this man and what he died for and and why yeah, yeah. exactly um until you <laughs> until you came along is it true that you found negatives that you found work that had not been published before? Yeah, absolutely. So, um basically my connection to the story is that Priya is my father's cousin, um and my father worked as a photographer for a long time and essentially kind of interned with Priya a little bit. You know, they worked together on some stories. Um he, Priya was very much a mentor for my father. Um and so, you know, my father actually, yeah, he did photography for a while and then eventually moved into what was the kind of leftover from the 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 printing press um that was primarily for newspapers became a commercial printing house uh, okay. so he he basically you know ran that with his brothers but did photography for a while and in the early 60s when priya was working also um so they were very close and so and of course my father being a photographer had that interest you know in in his work and would talk about priya when we were growing up and you know it was like you had you know there's this uncle you know he was killed covering the Nigerian civil war and there's a exists a tape somewhere of him actually getting killed and you know i know it exists and we've been trying for years to find it and you know we've never really gotten a copy of it and also he had a few stacks of life magazine that had um priya's obituary piece in it that i remember seeing as a kid that i was very struck by and so when i was graduating from college i thought it would be really interesting to just try to learn more about him and so i sent a letter to morley safer right because um, morley safer of 60 minutes and right i mean he was he was there he was there when your uncle was killed right exactly context so when my sorry i yeah i missed that whole bit but when basically when my uncle was on his final assignment um covering the nigerian civil war um what was thought to be the end of it around in october 1968 he was on an assignment with morley safer when they were basically taken fire um by 
Biafran rebels. They were with the Nigerian Federal Army at the time, and Priya was was shot and fell to the ground, and Morley Safer kind of carried him to safety. And there was a camera rolling the entire time, so you see, you know, Priya falling down on the ground, like you know, uh, his cameras, you know, falling to his side, etc. So I, I, I knew that you know Morley Safer was somebody that perhaps could help me get this, you know, get access to this archive. So I wrote him a letter and um, said, you know, this is my phone number. And he called me and said, yeah, you know, come and meet me, Jesus. whatever. Letters um, and telephone calls? I like, know, yeah. What, what era was this? <laughs> but Morley Safer is in, he's in Morley time. Like, yeah, know, exactly. Send that man yeah. a fax. He deserves yeah. it. Like, uh, that's amazing. So yeah. he got back to you and, and, and then he, he who could move mountains at CBS did yeah this stuff absolutely i mean you know i was i was 24 at the time i had no idea what i was doing i said yeah you know i'm making a documentary about my uncle you know can i come and interview you and so he said yeah absolutely not a problem so i yeah. just went over and um uh interviewed him and he gave me a copy of of the tape wow. um, but what's yeah. so cool about that is that's you know because he I, I, you know and i'd read this in the new yorker piece that he did a stand-up you know kind of that night or something for CBS News, I think it was, um, and and he was like, you know, this man was my best friend, and he was just killed, and nobody will care. You know, it's just like right. uncharacteristically caustic, you know, and just sort of like yeah. final. Um, but you know, uh, television people say a lot of shit, but if they mean it, then they'll answer your letter. You know, how many fifty years later? You know, yeah. forty five, like, and just. And actually be like, you know what? Yes, I owe it to him to come and have you talk to me. I mean, I'm sure it was an incredible letter and it was very convincing. But like, it, it seems like a real testament to what Priya meant to to him at that moment and, and, and afterwards, too. So you had the opportunity then to go and spend time and get the footage and get the interview and sort of solve what, at least for your father and you, was this like kind of deep family mystery. Yeah, well, it was it was just this early thing of, you know, well, there's this tape and so, you know, of him getting killed. And so for the longest time, this idea was just like, oh, well, let's just get that tape. And then, you know, the, the memory of him will essentially be perversely, you know, like him getting killed on camera, you know, and that's like the last time. That's the only way we'll sort of be able to see him, you know, alive in, you know. Is that uh, the only video that you think would have that's, been? That's the uh, the only other video I've seen of him is like him like ducking behind other camera people on you know like the on an, like an assignment of like the Queen in Nairobi and he's like there like just quickly darting behind <laughs> obviously wearing a suit because back then journalists I had to wear suits, suits. And they, <laughs> yeah maybe they had enough money for suits I was gonna know? say yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so so yeah so what happened was you know it was initially it was like okay, well, how do we find um, an arch this archive that we know exists that reflects his death? Um, and, you know, the the broader question was also, though, like, where are his, where are his photos? You know, because it may sound, you know, a bit, a bit cheesy to say, but, like, you know, that would be, like, in it. maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but just, like, in hindsight, you know, like, finding his photos was really a, a way of, I mean, we never had any footage of him speaking, you know, we never had any footage of, of him doing other, doing anything other than sort of darting in the background or, or dying on camera. So the only way we could sort of try to 
find out who he was was through people that knew him and and his and his photos and there was this question of well where are his pictures you know he must have he must have a lot of them he must have an archive what happened and my father said you know well like we don't know like i mean maybe we had we thought like a girlfriend of his like maybe took them at some point you know or some of them are in the time life archive and a lot of them are in the time life archive but there was this feeling that a stack of them were just missing and so i kind of went around like every family member that i knew just asking you know where are his photos where are his photos and one uncle of mine was like um yeah i think like i may have some of them somewhere and so i was like okay can i do you mind if i just dig around and he was like yeah yeah come over and went into his garage and just like sort of buried under sort of piles of you know garage trash as i would call it um were just stacks and stacks of boxes and boxes of negatives and prints and contact sheets um tens of thousands so i was like oh my god you know this is that's this amazing archive of missing work beyond beyond what was on you know getty.com and you know because he did have a lot of amazing pictures that were on there but the idea of like well where's the rest of it god i yeah, yeah. I feel bad, like, you I, You should have asked me. I was at time from, like, 2004 to 2010. and Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, we knew we had very dusty archives, but right. you never thought. You always thought it was, like, Hubert Humphrey campaign stop B-roll. You know, like, things right. that, like. Right. But just, like, having such an intense and emotional and, like, family story connected to, mm-hmm. you know, what, what exists. Because they used to send it all in. Yeah, I mean, they just would send the whole roll of film. It wasn't like today where they're doing an edit and they're having, you know, their right. editor in Italy kind of decide which, you know, 15, 20 shots will go or something. It's like yeah. just like the whole thing. Um, wow. Yeah. But you found it here in Kenya. Yeah. So I found the majority of it in Kenya. Um, and then um, after the film came out, I made a film about his life, you know, the film and the, and the book. People started contacting me kind of out of the woodwork, like, old girlfriends of his would say, oh, yeah, hi, you know, like literally would Google me and like get their name because, you know, they were like in their 80s at this point, right? Because he was born in the 30s. Um, so, you know. Um, old flames. Old, old flames. To be like, I have all these photos. Like, you know, you come and take a look. And so I found a lot that way. That's, a, um, that's, a, that's an amazing approach to like your personal archives. Just date a lot of women and then drop like some portion of your life's work with them and hope that they'll kind of like coalesce. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm for you. You got it. Yeah. Got well, it. yeah. That, that, yeah. I mean, he, he did have a, a lot of girlfriends. That's yeah. part of, yeah. I mean, um, and and so yeah, and a lot of them yeah had had his had his photos. Um, so yeah, it was just amazing, just like yeah, finding them and kind of just seeing a lot of the work. And actually, you just you mentioned the time archive, right after almost right after we like hit send on like the whole book. Basically, I just remember I was like I had this thought. I was like, oh, you know what? Like every few months or so, I Google his name just to see if there's anything new out there. You know, articles, photos, whatever, and. Uh, there was, I think it's it's called Google Art. Are you familiar with Google Art? No. It's like some. It's another Google search engine that searches photos and articles and things. And it was like Priyaramraka, like twenty thousand new search results. And I was like, oh my god, you know what is this? So time just dropped so, the whole thing. Yeah, time must have just somehow, maybe as a result of the Google hits that his name was getting, or something decided, or perhaps some other whatever reason threw on like a bunch of other photos and 
I looked through like every single one and I was like, thank God. Everything that we had in the archive from Kenya. From Kenya. Okay. Were very similar takes, some from even the same event, but always the better photo for some reason. Like it's, was, it's almost as if they rejected the best work. As it was almost as if like at the time they were editing so strongly for a, a US audience that that's amazing. Yeah. That what was left behind was just the gold. Um, I mean, I yes, and I worked with some tremendous photo editors, but that would not surprise me if uh, if somehow the very best work has I've gotten to see a lot of the outtakes from from the you know from the old days, and uh, the outtakes are amazing. Um, so all right, so what about so you've 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 done the film, you've done the book, you yourself have now your own existence. It's I, I don't know if it's militant journalist, but you're a filmmaker. Uh, you are a journalist as well. Like, how do you see yourself and your work and your life in in this pretty incredible line? What do you want to see done? Um, yeah, it's funny you ask. Like, how do how do I define myself? Um, so i i run a I run a production company um, that does video production for a variety of clients. I, I sometimes joke that I'm gravitating more towards my Indian roots because I'm now a bit more of a shopkeeper um, than um, perhaps as a, as uh, creative as I as I used to be. Even though I still, you know, do all parts of the the process in, in the filmmaking. But um, sorry, your question but it's, again. It's business. No, I mean that's sure. And and I guess that's I'm I'm asking you because I'm asking for myself. <laughs> this is how it often works with me. But it's just like how do you you know these 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 moments that your uh, you know that your uncle and your father and your grandfather lived through were so stark. They were so clear. I mean, at least in hindsight, of like what you know these big moments in history, and that's where journalism can kind of rise to the call. And and you know it, it's it's hard to be living in whatever this moment that we're in now. While also trying to you know run a media company that has a payroll and has you know kind of uh ins and outs and and you know that sense of mission is so hard to see in the present even if you can detect it pretty clearly in the past um and that's i don't know so that's always for me it's like what should journalists be doing like what's the big story now and then can we even can like is the business so fucked that we can't even you know like you'd have to be a serious like hermit or ascetic to to even go after it you know like you'd have to be, and maybe that's what your uncle was, was just somebody who was so outside of the, the standards and the norms of his own society at the time that he was going to do that work no matter what. It's just, I don't know. It's, um, I'm not looking for an answer. I'm just talking. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> fascinating. I mean, it's like, that makes me think of, you know, well, I think we've talked a bit about why he was doing what he was doing. I think because of how he was influenced, right? Like this political dimension to his work from from my grandfather who was running the anti-british newspapers and and whatever and then the other the other interesting question about him is well how was he even be able how was he even able to do this right like he was an indian who grew up in the kenyan kalabar did a ton of work before you know british like before kenyan independence and then ended up working for one of the i mean the biggest news organization of the era right you know i mean as one as one journalist described to me he said you know life 
and and time you know in in the 60s it was like late 50s 60s was like being a movie star you know like i mean and and priya's like bank statements for the time because somehow they're in his archive would show it i mean he you know he had like two sports cars and just was living like yeah. a proper rock star the the good old days yeah um, um but there was still something you know and i frequently am just savaging my former employers and the people who kind of put me up in this industry but but there was something particularly in those days that despite all the pomp and the you know the in, incredible flow of money that was going through it like there were people there who recognized like journalism up close and like desired it deeply you know and that's that's yeah. how i guess that's how an indian kenyan you know can make his name because he's just closer like he you know he's he's not like someone being flown in from the states or britain to cover these things it's like this is his story too yeah absolutely i think he was respected because he was from east africa and you know he knew africa extremely extremely well and he and, and in, in a lot of ways he almost transcended that in that i mean he was flown in to photograph the Prague Spring, right, in 1968. So somebody somewhere was like, oh, he's going to make good pictures of this. Um, so, so yeah, he, you know, he was... Actually, did you ever work with Bobby Baker Burroughs or did you know her? I did not, at, no. At time. Um, but she was a photo editor, actually, related to Larry Burroughs, the yeah, um, yeah. Vietnam photographer. And yeah, she, and she was before my time, though. Okay, right. Yeah, I guess she was probably just, yeah. Yeah, yeah right, because 2000, 2003. But she talked about how, you know, when... Henry Luce like started life you know his vision for his photographers was that they would be able to cover anything from you know like fashion show to war basically and I feel like Priya was sort of was you know, kind of like that yeah. working working more towards that but another reason he was able to do what he did was because he had a British passport as a result of that British migration that his family had done and so We've talked about this a little bit, you know, my co-author and I, about how, and we touch on it a little bit in the book, he was almost in some ways like an honorary white guy at that time, right? Like he was like able to travel. Right. African photographers at the time did not have British passports. So there's no way they could have even left right. the continent. And so that what that's that's kind of what makes him extremely unique in that era, is that he was able to move around. Um, yeah. No, if you were African, you would have had to go through Moscow, which is a really bad way to get to Prague Spring, right? I mean, that's, exactly. No, it's it is, it, yeah. and I know that you know the Kenyan passport is is you know the strongest in Africa, but it's still a bitch. Like right. you know, yeah. if you're using that to kind of travel and and try to see anything outside of this continent, like it's it's it you know that functional stuff is. I got my first break. They first sent me on a solo assignment because the guy who had had the job before me was an Australian who had let his driver's license lapse. So we couldn't rent a car. And they had some shit in West Virginia that had to get done. Like it had to get reported. And it's just like, that's a really weird, you know, kind of like, um, you know, a turning point or something. But it's sometimes it's like, who can get there and how do you do it? And that's a, that's a huge challenge for, you know, you talk about all the things that keep someone like an Indian Kenyan from reaching the highest parts of the media industry you know internationally like your uncle did one of them has definitely got to be a passport um so that's fascinating uh but that's that's kind of that inside you know it's, it's like that insider outsider thing 
where you get to like use that power, you know? Yeah. Like right. wield it. <laughs> right. I mean, or just even, he could even just afford a camera, right? Like at the right. very earliest iteration of, you know, his, yeah. his career too, right? It's um, like, um, so what's yeah. the, what's what's the next story? What's the big East Africa story? What's the one we should all do when we have no more bills to pay and um, <laughs> studios to run? Oh man! Well, I mean, if it were me, it would be kind of just continuing to look at this. Um, uh, yeah, I think the history of photography in the in the region is is really interesting. You know, um, I think you know if for every photo archive, you know, like the photo archive that I found of his, there must be lots of others, you know, just like That's... wonderful, just, you know, hidden gems of family archives just all around. And it's like, well, if they're in West Africa, they're just going to decompose pretty soon. <laughs> um, and honestly, honestly, one of the reasons why Prius was, you know, solid was because we're here and, you know, kind and of zero humidity. And it's just absolutely um, perfect human temperature and cellulose friendly. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, because, you know, the City Bay and, and you know, the kind of the, the Mali, that studio photography is like celebrated and known. And, and if you're saying that there was something that was very similar that like had that same vibe and that same kind of cultural weight to it here in East Africa, that's like that's a that's a mission. Try and see what that is and find it. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, you know, you and a lot of that history is with the Indian community as well. Right. It, again, it just goes back to like, you know, who could have afford photography, who, who was able to collect it and keep it. And yeah, it would be great. To, I, I think it'd be great if there were just more kind of resources avail- available for, for that kind of local history to just be built up. Yeah. Um, yeah, fuck it. Let's yeah. let's get them. Let's yeah. go find them. I mean, I was just like, I was just saying, I, I just sent my, I went through my grandmother's stuff in Central Jersey, and they, you know, uh, they had some enthusiastic Super 8 filmmakers and like, you know, photographers from way back, just like the, you know, the kind of ahead of their time hobbyists. And I just sent 2,500 slides and two hours of Super 8 film from the 50s and wow. 60s and, and, you know, from a lot of parts of the world. And I'm like, I'm very fucking excited about what comes back. Yeah. Um, and it's like, yeah, that stuff is, you know, 2,500 images in 30 years of traveling through the Eastern Bloc and, wow. uh, and, and, and Western Europe and, and the States. I believe I might have taken 2,500 pictures on my iPhone since January, you know? <laughs> right. But I'm just like, I'm very ready to see what like a thoughtful photo culture and a photo metabolism looks like. And like, you know, yeah, like when, yeah. you, when you only had 24, you know, images uh, to, to do at a time. So, right. Um, did you send it to Digify in New York? I did not. Yeah. I, I skipped Digify. I went to, yeah. um, a terrible name, but really yeah. interesting people. Uh, smooth Photo Scanners. Okay. Of nice. Lodi, New Jersey. Excellent. I can say we're on my way home. Close to home. Jersey. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Less time for those. So let's see. For yeah. that cellular to decompose well, in the, gonna, uh, in the humidity. Before this episode comes out, they will have sent me uh, what they had scanned and, and the Super 8 videos. So um, we'll decide whether to leave this in. <laughs> Are we endorsing them or not? But that's great. We should totally work with Digify or Smooth Scanner Pros uh, and just like, yeah, get that stuff from here and figure out. Like, can you imagine? Yeah. Such amazing, right. like, yeah, amazing perspectives. All right. 
Yeah. Um, um, but just, so just a quick last point on that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, and it sounds like kind of low stakes, like, oh yeah, let's, you know, I'm going to digitize my family archive, right? Like, because not every family archive is turning into a book or a film or whatever, right? Um, but I think it's just the idea of preservation of family archives and historical material is that, you know, I think the heritage of, of a place filters out really fast, right? So if you look at Kenya um, and you look at the Indian community now, right, the filtration of Indian identity just keeps increasing with every generation, right? So like right now, you know, my current generation, like some of us had traditional Indian weddings, you know, some of us, some of us didn't, um, you know, some of us like, you know, observed some Indian tradition, some of us didn't. Um, some of us keep on, still have our parents' language, you know, some of us don't. Um, but when when all those things are all gone, because, you know, what, Kenya, for example, is, is becoming, you know, more westernized, like the Indian community here is, is becoming more westernized. In fact, the kind of mantra of the Indian community and the Indian parents is often, you know, go west, go west, go west, and, you know, don't come back. And so, as that continues, like traditions and, and, and sort of cultural identifiers and just things that even if we're not connected to, like cultural representations of where we came from, no longer exist in the present. But in photographs, they do. And so like that's just a way of remembering it. Even though, you know, I'm done with, you know, I'm, you know generations after me won't have Indian weddings, like won't speak the language, you know, um, won't have like too much, won't go to do the religious have a sustain a lot of the traditions it's still interesting to be like okay well we came from here and yeah. this is what these people look like and you know this is what it looked like for them to yeah do the things that they did and um yeah, yeah you should you should try that with <laughs> jews man like <laughs> right i look at i look at some of the pictures of, of the generation which would have been great grandparents maybe maybe one above them right they came from eastern europe yeah, and they look to me like South Williamsburg Hasids, you know, and we're all atheists and just d- delighted the devourers of pork, and you know, right. there's some right, like right. we're so far there from that. Go. But you just kind of look at it and you're like, "Fuck, all right, I gotta just check myself a little bit because <laughs> clearly I come from a place where I was, you know, in a very different mindset." Um, right, but that's true, and and you know, I for these you know these episodes that I'm doing in Nairobi, I'm not sure I will whether black African or whether you like, I'm not sure I'm going to talk to somebody who actually went to university in this country, you know, and their cultural references. And a lot of times their work lives, you know, are kind of pointed toward the West in a way. And, you know, and, and there's something great about that. There's opportunity and there's like, and there's also, you know, the salutary effect that it's having on, on us, you know, in the States to be able to have a closer connection with here. But yeah, it's definitely like, not very far removed from people whose only context was local, you know? Um, so that'll be interesting. We got to see where those pictures are going to come up. Can you get them scanned by the time this episode comes out? Well, you got to go find them first. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you send them in to New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then get them scanned. But, um, well, listen, I, I, I think the fact that you're here keeping the tradition alive by having a very Indian uh, Johnny Walker Black with me, <laughs> Um, feels like you've got at least a couple, another couple generations of like deep Indian Kenyan uh, you know, heritage coming. So uh, thank you so much, Ron. It's such an amazing conversation. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. Gosh, really appreciate it. 
The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Emily Marinoff was our producer on this episode, Taffy Mokinyadze, our consulting producer. Alexa Van Sickle is our editor. Music by Dan the Automator, episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Special thanks on this episode to R&K contributor Rajiv Gola, who was living then in Kampala, writing a book about the Indian diaspora in East Africa. And he took a bus all the way from Kampala into Nairobi to grab some beers and introduce me to fine people like Shravan. Next up in this feed, we are taking a slight Christmas break, but we'll be back with our final 2020 Havana episode. That's on Monday, December 28th. It's with M.A. Alfonso, a renowned musician and member of one of Cuba's most celebrated creative families. Have a beautiful holiday, hang tight, and we will meet you back in Havana. <laughs>